Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. We got a wonderful show for you today. Brittany Brave is here. Very funny comedian, very talented actress. She also puts on comedy shows. She does she does everything. She has a new show on Vimeo. You can watch it right now. The Disastrous Dating Life of Diane Damone. Be sure to check that out. By the way, if you like the show, support us. $2 per month. KillTheLionFilms.com You're not just supporting the show, you're also supporting the studio as well. You're helping us make actual movies, which we love to do. And now, without further ado, Brittany Brave. All right, Brittany, good to have you on. Hi, good to be here. How you been? It seems like you've been pretty busy despite the uh, pandemic and all that stuff going on. Yeah, I um, I can't complain, honestly. I, it feels a little awkward to be one of those people who's like, yeah, I actually had a great 2020 or uh, I think I, I think I persevered despite a global pandemic and a bunch of chaos that surrounds that. Um, but yeah, busy. Good problem to have. Those, those sometimes I do wish it would slow down. I slept in until 1.30 today. So whoopsies. So you have a new show. It's on Vimeo right now. I think two episodes are up as of the time we're recording this. It's called The Disastrous Dating Life of Diane Damone. Did I get that title right? You did. You were actually the first person to get that right. So a thousand points to you. I've heard The Diane Show, The Dating Diane, Disastrous Diane, and you were the first person to get the complete title. So you're a gem. Awesome. So if you want to type it in correctly, just listen to how I said it. Type it in just like that. You'll find it on the internet, those of you at home listening. So two episodes so far, very funny show. And you shot this during the pandemic, I believe? We did, yeah. Very grateful for that. Nobody got sick. Everybody stayed safe. Um, We actually knocked out all three episodes for the most part in a collective week's worth of time between October and December. Um, And between BTS, some extra content, and all three episodes, yeah, it was less than like seven days it took us to do it. I, I know you understand the hustle of an indie filmmaking team and production company, but yeah, we're super proud. You know, A, of the episodes and B, yeah, to have been able to pull this off when literally every everything was against us um, is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very funny show. I feel like even if it sucked, it would just still be impressive to me just that you were able to pull it off in that amount of time and with everything bearing down on you as far as the world right now. It's just a great show. People should watch it. The way I could describe it, it's kind of like a cartoonish, um, almost like a comic strip version of like a Sex in the City or something. It has that kind of. Uh, am I am I in the right direction whatsoever? You're a thousand percent in the right direction. I might have to um, ask you for intellectual property so that we can we can use that as the tagline. We might we might quote you. Um, yeah, it's a little high maintenance meets Fleabag. You're you're spot on with the New York energy of Sex in the City, but it's 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 quirkier, yeah. Comic strip Sex in the City. There's a lot of dating shows out there, and there's definitely a lot of dating and love shows where there's a female lead who's a hopeless romantic and falling in and out of these unfortunate situations. But I definitely think the difference with Diane is that she's she, yeah, like I use like she's not she's not bougie, she's not cute, awkward like new girl or something. You know, she really is a weirdo, and the whole show is like a little bit off kilter but it still has that heart of somebody who like ultimately really just wants to find love and, and find her person at the end of the day. She just goes about it in these like crazy random ways. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that aspect. I feel like you guys can get away with a little more of that than if you were a network show, because you're just kind of doing it yourself and you're doing it on Vimeo and you're doing it in more of a truly independent way. How did the show come together as far as the writing, the producing, how, how does this project, uh, 
come to be? Yeah, so I, it is Joseph Patrick Conroy is a director, creator, cinematographer. Um, he's wonderful. He, his good friend, Lori Roma is who the original Diane is. Um, and they're very, very good friends. They go way back and they decided many years ago to start to put down some of the crazy shit that she was going through as a single girl in the city, because a lot of it, you know, like, like real dating situations, a lot of it is like too good to be too funny to be true. You know, you think, and it's, it's really awkward and crazy and you wouldn't believe this shit. Uh, and they put the project on the shelf and then quarantine brought it back out and Joe had the time. So he started writing the episodes out. He and I worked together many years ago. He, he started coming to shows. We stayed in touch and then, yeah, he reached out and was like, every time I write this, I hear your voice as Diane. And he's like, I really want it to be funny. That's how I really wanted to, like, differentiate from a normal dating show. So he was like, would you have any interest in, like, punching up the jokes and being Diane and, and helping, helping make this come to life? So, alas, here we are. That's great. Some of my favorite projects that I've ever worked on have been stuff where like I just see a person's face and voice and just know they're like they're it. They're the people that are going to, you know, bring it to life and and all that. So, you talked about punching it up. How much contribution was there from you as far as like the writing and uh what went into the episodes? For the most part, these first three, at the very least, are, are Joe's writing with me tweaking some of the jokes. And then my background is in improv. So I was really insistent that, you know, we would get the takes that we needed up front with all of the episodes, but then made sure that we allotted time for two to three just to mess around and improvise. And, and we came up with a lot of stuff on set. I came up with ways to kind of make Diane my own and then moving forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit more now involved in the, in the writing process. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not too surprising that some of my dating escapades are probably going to end up being an episode or two. So to all my ex-boyfriends who are listening, you did this to yourself. So, <laughs> so how many episodes can we expect? Uh, is there a planned amount? Are you going to do seasons? What, what's the idea going forward? Yeah, so the idea here is to kind of develop Diane into a fully blown show with longer than, you know, those web series seven to 10 snippet episodes. Um, we are currently juggling another three scripts right now. We have Joe has a couple drafts for it and he has a couple stories from Lori. I have a couple stories. So I would safely say there's going to at least be a season. But the quicker that we can get this kind of, you know, in the hands of the right development deal and network, so on and so forth, the quicker we're going to try to flesh this out until a fully blown show. And with the idea of really, really making Diana character and really, you know, giving her all these layers and, and a story, who she is, what she does for a living and hopefully being able to, to actually make a pilot. So for sure, getting a season under our belt and just getting some more of these proof of concepts to present to people and then really, really building out this world around Diane. So beyond Diane, uh, you've also been doing comedy pretty consistently during the pandemic. How have you pulled that off? I know you've been coming to New York and, and going back to Florida and just kind of jumping back and forth a lot. Um, how have you been able to do that? I know it's been a lot. It's very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, um, I think by catching COVID early on and developing antibodies, that's how I was able to. No, that's a joke. Um, but yeah, I, I went back and forth. I went back and forth because I needed to. Um, you know, things started coming up. I was in a movie, my friend Michael Pomeroy's movie, The Rest of Your Life, and Diane was there. And the back and forth was almost a necessity just because I left at the top of COVID. And then I was in Miami. And then I needed to go back to New York to kind of check in on my life there. But I was also building these roots in Miami. So, you know, there's a way to do it. I think everybody approaches pandemic based on their own comfort level. 
for me, I would have been more uncomfortable spending an entire year not working at all. But again, everyone made the choice that's right for them. So yeah, I just got tested frequently, tried to take care of myself, tried to plan my trips out. And it's kind of been nice because now I kind of feel like as if I have two homes. Now, what's a crowd like during the pandemic? Is there a nightmare crowd situation that you've you've had thus far? Have people been pretty cool? Uh, what What's the energy like at these shows? So initially, that's a really good question. Initially, I definitely think people were getting used to being out of the house again. And for, first, getting reused to remembering how to be a good audience member, right? Remembering how to be at a comedy show. Number two, the comedy shows people were going to were on roofs and in parks and in these really unnatural kind of circumstances almost, you know? And then number three is, you know, just getting used to being out of the house and being a normal human being and socializing and everyone's a little scared. Everyone's a little paranoid. Um, So I feel like the crowds went through all these waves. Like they were a little quiet and, and awkward and, you know, as comedians, we're a little rusty ourselves as well too. So that kind of contributed to it. Then they were like rabid, like, you know, then like when the, when the world started to open back up again and everything was kind of getting back to normal, you know, they were, they were so hungry for comedy. They were so excited about comedy. And then, yeah, I mean, now it's pretty much back to normal. Now we've got clubs open and stuff and, you know, people are, you know, for a little while, the people that were heckling us or the things that were heckling us were subway trains or car horns and stuff. And, you know, I'm happy to report that now the comedy's back. It's regular assholes again that are heckling us. So, Well, that's good to hear. It, it probably sucks being heckled by an inanimate object or, a, you know, a vehicle or whatever. It's a little bit of a one-way conversation. Yeah, it doesn't really give you a lot of crowd work to play off of. It's a little dystopian, too. Like mm-hmm. the idea of a car heckling you. That's just a little too futuristic. And it is. Yeah, George Orwell would be proud. Yeah. So you also put together shows. I know you were you had a pretty successful monthly comedy show that you were putting together in uh, New York City before the pandemic. I'm really impressed by the fact that not only do you do comedy, you also create opportunities for other people to do comedy and, and generate your own shows that you can be on and people can be on, etc. How did you decide that that was something that you wanted to do and be a part of, not just doing comedy, but you know, making comedy able to happen? I quickly, for me, everyone finds their own way in in these businesses and, you know, that makes sense. But I quickly, for me, figured out that creating my own stage time was the way to grow as a comedian and grow without having to, to depend on anybody but myself. Everything at the end of the day, and especially in our business, is just one person's opinion. You know, if somebody doesn't like you or says no to your pilot or your comedy, okay, it's one person. But also at the same time, the flip side of that coin is that, if somebody does like you and wants to support you, all it takes is one person, like at the exact same time. So I kind of quickly was like, you know, I could do this one of two ways. I could do this the old school way, which is trying to get past it all to clubs and just kind of leave my career and my growth as a comedian in the hands of these other gatekeepers. Or I can create my own currency, which is my own show. And because at the end of the day, it's, it's not about the accolades, really. It's just about like the stage time. And you getting your reps in and you like just getting better as a comedian. So producing shows has always been like, I started producing early on. And I mean, now in Miami, I'm running like three different rooms and it's, it's incredible because it's just like, no matter what happens, no matter whether I get booked or I don't, or whatever the case is, like I have time. And and that's all that really matters at the end of the day. You know, it's like going to the gym for your own health and your own aesthetic, not going to the gym to show off to other people. Like, so yeah. 
I, I'm a big believer in creating your own opportunities for that because, you know, it's, it's you are playing the long game here, especially with stand up. So what goes into putting together a, a good show and not just, you know, good people on stage, but, you know, the technical aspects as well, because you and I and, and everybody else, we've all been to great comedy shows. We've all been to terrible comedy shows. And a lot of it can be just the surroundings and the venue and maybe the lights are a little weird or maybe the sounds a little bad. How do you uh, put your stamp as far as quality on the shows that you produce? You know, it takes a lot of, you need to be organized. So we'll start with that. It's really important to stay organized. Planning in advance. I think having a vision for these things is really helpful as well, too. And yeah, I just think, I mean, I don't think everyone is a good producer either. Like I think, you know, you could do this. There's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, but for me, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's just having a vision for something and being detailed, being persistent. And I really think a big part of being a producer too is, you know, you can't let anybody push you around, you know, as a booker and as a producer, it's your show, you're attaching your name to it. If you're going to put all the work in and the money in and stuff, then, you know, book people that you want. Don't let anybody pressure you into a spot. Like, stay on top of your shit, all of this kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, my background is in PR. So I, a, a lot of this producing and event planning and PR and branding just kind of came like naturally. So yeah. So yeah, you worked in the music industry, I believe, before you started this, right? Yep. I was a publicist and artist manager. Yep. So was there any kind of fear of like, all right, I just left that world. I don't know if I want to be producing again, you know, when you were going into doing that as far as comedy, did you want to be like, all right, I just want to be a pure artist? Like, was there any kind of like, you know, do I step these toes in this water again, so to speak, uh, when you were starting producing shows? No, you know, I, I, I started producing early, early on. And I got that piece of advice from somebody as well, too, where they basically were like, you know, have your own room, like quickly, quickly get your own room. So I think for me, it was a natural segue from PR to comedy. Like I was like, well, I, I might be done with PR completely. And I might be like, you know, transitioning over into comedy, but you know, I, I can still apply these skills and make this work. And, you know, it wasn't dreadful for me because finally I was using the skills for myself. Unlike other times where I was, I was using all of the branding and just giving it out to other people, or I was using these skills and just giving it out to other people. Now it was kind of exciting. Cause I was like, Oh, I, this is all for me. Now I'm actually producing in a way that I want to, you know what I mean? So yeah, it was different. It was just, it was just completely different because as opposed to busting my ass for somebody else's art, I finally was busting my ass for my own. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's great advice too. I, you know, I do video editing, I make films, I do a bazillion different things. And I feel like the natural impulse sometimes if, if somebody's like me and wants to do a lot of different stuff in film is, oh, I'll get like a video editing job or, oh, I'll get like, you know, some job pertaining to what I'm already doing. But then you know, there can be this thing where like, if you're video editing all day long, then you're not going to have the energy to edit your own stuff later on. You're just going to be burnt out. Absolutely. Yeah. So like with me, like if I'm taking on like side jobs, I would always pick something that was like pretty different from the stuff that's really my passion. I would pick something where I was maybe getting a little exercise or being a little outdoors if I know I'm going to be video editing at night, you know? So I feel like that balance can be actually like a pretty cool thing. And also just doing whatever your skills are, just doing them on your own terms and then just finding other things here and there 
that are a little bit outside that, I would say. 100%. I think that's why I was able to do, when I did PR, there was sometimes that I did some PR for comedy related things. Like I worked in an agency at one point where I was involved on things that were um, comedy central related, true TV related, like things that were like tangential to, to comedy. Um, and I was really like resentful and bitter. Like, you know, like I, I, I didn't want to be involved in that. I didn't want to be behind the scenes. So I think the reason why I was able to do com to do PR for music is because how you said it was something that was so far out of my skill set that I was, curious about it. I was excited about it. It was going to help me like flex my muscles, but there was only so long I could stay in PR, like being able having to be on calls all day and write press releases and push myself so hard for other people's art is draining. And then, you know, I, I tried doing it in the beginning as I was weaning my way out of PR and into comedy. And then I was exhausted. I was trying to turn my brain off and go to open mics or go to shows. And I was like dead tired on Red Bull. Like my, my mind was on the conference calls I had to do the next day. So there's something to be said too, I think with artists, when you, you throw that safety net to the wayside, I think something changes. Like you have to do it and you have to let it go. And it's scary financially and security wise for a while, but it always, always pays off. Cause I think it kind of forces you to like freaking do it, you know, and just, and sink your teeth in. So you mentioned briefly, you mentioned uh, press releases. I found that that's something that it doesn't really uh, get into the kind of knowledge of uh, peers of mine, truly independent filmmakers that I talk to on here or elsewhere. Um, people just don't know about press releases if they're artists. If they're not entrenched in any version of a studio system, they just don't understand how important they can be. And they also you know, don't understand that like a lot of what you read, whether you're reading blogs or, or publications or whatever, can be just kind of regurgitated press releases where people are using the same key phrases from press releases that just got sent out and they're basically just copy and pasting a lot of stuff from it. Can you talk a little bit about press releases and what they are and how they can be kind of important to uh, anybody who's doing something artistically in this world? Yeah, for sure. So um, press releases are like, it's a main way to communicate with the media. It's an official way to communicate with the media, basically. So anytime there's an announcement or news or, you know, something that you want covered by the media, that's, that's kind of like the signal boost you send out, right? Like that's the thing that you, you push out to people to let them know something's happening, whatever that is. In the entertainment business, when I worked in music, it was for albums and tours and videos. And as a comedian, it's really helpful for shows and, and, and anything, you know, specials, tour dates, so on and so forth. But yeah, it's all of those, it's all of those things. Like, you know, as a creative, it's really important to have your business stuff in check. And then I think also too, if you're very business minded, like, you know, I feel like the two of us really are, then it's also hard. You know, you also have to make sure that you're turning that side of your brain off enough to leave room to be creative as well. But yeah, press is key. You know, it's um, more than ads, more than anything else, more than social media, you know, when the time is right, making sure you're building those relationships and you're, you're getting the word out about all the cool shit that you're doing, but you're getting the word out in the right way. Yeah, I'll have to shout out my friend Greg Deliso. He's a fellow filmmaker. He's the one who really hipped me to press releases in general. And when he did, he, it was almost like he discovered like a cheat code. It felt like in this great big video game that we're playing of life, uh, press releases are this cheat code as far as like getting your stuff out there because, you know, we can feel so lost as filmmakers, as artists, as far as like, oh man, nobody's noticing my stuff. And you kind of have to play the game a little bit on the game's terms. And press releases are kind of what makes the world go round. 
in that regard. And once he started doing press releases, he noticed a, a big change and he was like, oh, okay, now people are actually talking about my stuff. I had to speak in their language, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love what you just said, you know, playing the game by the game's terms. Like that really is so pivotal. And I feel like a lot of comedians, you know, at least I can speak from my art form. And I guess I saw it with musicians too. So I really can't say that too much. But a lot of comedians are so, um, you know, they, they think it's cool to not care. Or I think a lot of artists do too. And they're like, I don't care about that other bullshit. I just want to be good or I just wanted this and that and like great that's always a great mentality to have as well too but to your point like you have to by if you're going to grow and you want to be able to do your art and pay your bills with your art and really make this serious and go pro to use your words you got to play the game by the game's rules you have to know how to navigate the industry and that means like get good headshots you know like write a press release and maybe when the time is right hire a publicist and like put your shit together, produce, stay organized, make sure your website's up to date, you know, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. So if there's one thing that I'm grateful for from those six years in PR that I can go to bed at night and know it wasn't a complete waste is it gave me that business sense, you know, and it gave me that leg up in that way. Yeah. In a sense, it's like picking up after yourself. It's like, you know, making sure your surroundings are clean and orderly in that like, you know, somebody's going to have to write the press release at some point, you know, at, at some point in your life, somebody's going to have to do that. And, you know, if you are a creative and you want a lot of autonomy and you want a lot of control, why not it be you and why not you, you know, flex those muscles or at least build those muscles and get some practice as far as doing that? Because, you know, somebody's going to have to at some point. It's just like somebody's going to have to pick up after you. You know, I, I feel like artists in general, I love artists. I am an artist. You know, this is all with love. But like artists in general, they can be a little sloppy with uh, what they're putting together as far as, you know, what their their life's work is. It can get a little bit, bit sloppy. And a lot of times if you have a manager or an agent or a publicist or whatever, they're just cleaning your mess. You know, they're just kind of doing that. And you can do that. You can do that for free by yourself. You don't need to hire somebody to do that. If you're, especially if you're frugal, as far as a filmmaker or an artist, you know, it's inexpensive. All it costs is time and maybe reading a couple articles to do that legwork yourself. I couldn't agree more. And to your point about cleaning up a mess, like, then you're, if, if that's what's happening, then you're never moving forward. And then you're paying for a publicist or you're paying for these services where if you can figure out these basic things and take care of some of these things on your own and understand how the business works and you're going to be, then you're going to pay a publicist to do the right things, which is to make proactive pitching for you and proactive choices for you. You know what I mean? Like, and then it's as opposed to what you said, which is like, Oh my, you know, my, my artist forgot a gig again or didn't get me the info in time. So now we're 10 steps behind on the press release and whatnot. And when I was in music, I found that to be the best clients to work with. And the people who succeeded the most are the ones who did a lot of their business stuff early on on their own, because the best way to win the industry is to know the industry. Not to say you're going to do it correctly, not to say it's going to always be successful. You know, you got to fail like anything else to learn, but the artists that had the bargaining power at record labels were the ones that did it on their own for a couple of years, did their own press, booked their own tours, did their own shit. And then they were able to kind of go to a record label and be like, so what can you do for me? And then they had this like insane, incredible power of being like, I kind of know how the business works a little bit. I'm not saying I know everything, but you're not going to pull wool over my eyes. Like I know the industry and I've navigated it a little bit myself. So what are you bringing to the table kind of thing? 
And I think it's the same for comedians. Like, do, you know, do your own shit, build your own currency, you know? So then when you grow, it's just practice so that you can make these, these marketing and branding choices on an even bigger scale. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a lot like relationships in general or, you know, some guy who wants a girlfriend, but you know, you kind of have to meet people halfway in anything in life. You know, if you, if you do like a modicum of like personal hygiene and grooming and, you know, the, these things in life that just meet the, the stranger halfway, you'll find a lot of success, whether your career, dating, etc. You just kind of have to meet people halfway. Most people will meet you there if you meet them halfway, I feel. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think meeting people halfway is the right, that's a decent mentality, you know, so then it's like we all get to lift each other up and no one's doing just, you know, one side of the work. And yeah, when you meet people halfway too, those are the best collaborations and partnerships, you know, you're getting what you need out of it. And so are they. All right. So how we met was, you know, we worked on my film Strummer together. I, I believe I found you on backstage, but we did have some kind of mutual friends in common that we we discovered. A- as far as first impressions go, I, I feel like the second we kind of locked eyes on each other, we just kind of knew that both of us were not bullshit, that both of us were just kind of professional and we're going to do a good job and all of that. That was my impression. I would like to hear your impression because you're the first person that I've had on the show that's somebody that I've I've really worked with in one of my films. Can you give kind of the other person's side of like what it's like to work with me or whatever? Yeah, a thousand percent. I couldn't agree more. And I'm very much so on the same page. I mean, it's kind of funny how we connected because we connected, yeah, like through online. And, you know, those can always be, as you know, as we both know, you know, you, you meet a lot of people online and you don't really have a lot of context. But I think, you know, you're such a talented director cinematographer you're talented at casting so i think you knew what you wanted and and you knew how to like seek out the right talent and yeah then when we met it was i think our 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 work ethic we respected out of each other our commitment to our craft you know the way we wanted the project to be you know at all costs as good as it can be and those have become my favorite relationships you know that i've made over the last few years is you know there's people you can have fun with that's great you know there's people that you can enjoy in other capacities. But anytime I get to collaborate with people, those are like the richest relationships for me. And those are the people that like yourself become good friends, you know, because what's a better way to trust somebody than to out the gate, be able to be like, Hey, here's my, here's a baby of mine. Here's a project of mine. You know, it's almost like babysitting in a way, like, you know, and that's such a quick way to bond with people. Like I trust you enough to be involved on something I take really seriously and to build something with you. Even if I just met you through backstage or I just met you at a casting call or something. So, and, and that's, I think the friendship comes afterwards because if you can work together, like you and I could, and like trust each other, and lift each other up and count on each other, then it's like, don't you already have like half of the battle won already? You know, like it's like that's, you know, now now from there on, everything is additive, the camaraderie, the friendship, the fun, everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you said about babysitting. Um, I think that's a really great metaphor as far as like, you know, when you're you're finding an actress or an actor or whatever for your project, you're basically putting your baby in their hands for their screen time. So when they're on screen delivering your lines or on your mark, as far as what you're setting up with the cinematography or whatever, your baby is in their hands. And it's got to be somebody that you can kind of just trust with your baby for that time period, because it's, you know, it's three minutes on screen or three minutes when you're recording it. But it's a lifetime. It's it's those three minutes last forever you know, because it's art. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a career. A career is never a shot in the box thing. I don't think anybody can be canceled quickly, you know, and and I don't think anything takes off and a shot in the pan or whatever that saying is. And I mean, some things do, but I don't think that's artistry in a real career. So you're absolutely right. Like, that's another piece of advice to artists or that things I see comedians fuck up with all the time and musicians that I'm like, Got to understand, like, the things that you think are no big deal or chill right now, like, have really long-term implications. <laughs> like, like you're building a career and, like, yes, you can move past things and, yes, people get over things and some things work and take off and some things aren't that good. Of course, it's a body of work and whatever. But, you know, if you're building these things correctly, the choices you're making now are going to influence the next projects you're involved on. Those projects are going to influence the next projects and, you know, so on and so forth. So what do you see when you look at kind of the stuff that I'm doing and and a lot of people that uh, are on this podcast so far have been filmmakers and and people that are just doing things truly independently that are putting things together completely themselves and kind of trying to change the film industry completely and make it more of an artistic medium as opposed to commerce and ways to sell shoes or whatever, you know, just things to put on in between the commercials. I think you're a purist, you know, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, I feel the same way about comedy. You know, I, I, uh, I try to not go the hack route, you know, as, as much as I can. And I, I try to, you know, think of it as building a career as a philosopher and as somebody who can say something for a generation to really relate to. And I understand that that means a lot of sacrifice. And I understand that that means a lot of short-term validation goes, goes missing, you know, um, which I'm sure you feel sometimes maybe as a filmmaker, like you want to make quality stuff from everything I've seen with you and, and you're always working and you really want to think everything to have a message. And there's a lot of attention to detail and there's two ways to do it. Like how you said, you know, you could either just make it to make it and you just want money and fame and and there's a lot of that now there's a lot of people that are masking as artists when it's really just like are you are you artists or are you fl- flavors of the week or or are you artists or are you content creators yeah it's a uh, it's definitely it's two roads and you got to pick one or the other you really got to commit to whatever it is which isn't to say that you can't kind of learn more skills beyond what you actually do because you can do business in a more artistic way that's the entire ad world that's why the ad world you know is ever good that's why advertisements are ever good is because you can kind of you know, do business in an artistic way. Absolutely. But you do have to kind of, you know, pick, am I an artist or am I, you know, I'll, I'll say a robot, but you know, I'm obviously being biased here, but <laughs> yeah. Well, when I worked in music, I was like, there's people who are um, stars and then there's people who are artists. There's people who are, you know, and I think it's a little bit different and you can be both, you know, or maybe what was it that I said? Um, you know, it, I, I said something different, like, with music. And I, I mean, I feel that way about comedy. I think there's comics and then comedians, you know, I think comics, there's nothing wrong with us, by the way, like, but comics have a very, like, I just want to be a working comic and whether fame comes or not is fine or, you know, they, they're just content with. It. And then I think I, I do notice it with my peers that there's a difference. There's people who are like, no, I'm really trying to say something here. And I'm really trying to be careful about like what I, what I put out and, that means I sacrifice laughs sometimes. That means I don't always get booked or like, I I understand I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it might take me double as long to build my audience, but I'll, but I'll get there. And when I get there, it's going to be the right people and the right messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, um, when, when you're an artist and you are putting stuff out there, there, there becomes a certain magnetism, a certain momentum from the fact that you are fully committing to, 
what you are doing. So you will always be more irresistible than something that is shoved down somebody else's throat as far as, you know, you see a million ads for something or you see tr constant trailers for some movie. I'm always put off by when I see peers creating content that I, well, art, they think it's art, but content that um, it's very clear that they're trying to get hired for something in the industry. And it's it's like they will they will go through the exact same amount of work as uh, somebody who's doing it for the art. So they'll make like a very uh, they'll make a truly independent film like on paper, exactly the same as me or somebody else. But the actual you know the actual meat of the project is totally just hey hire me hey hire me I want to be a part of the system I want to be a part of the system. They're so com comedians book me book me book me book me I want to do this I am available and I'm like you know. Well, maybe you don't deserve to do this. <laughs> maybe you're not the right fit for this. And also like getting, but I, I completely, getting hired and getting booked is like, a lot of it is ego at that point. Like, so I think you just want to get hired to get booked so that you can validate to yourself that you're worthy of getting booking. When really at the end of the day, it's about like how I said about producing, like seeking out your own projects, making your own stage time, stuff like that. Cause you just really want to be best at what it is you're doing versus like i didn't get booked womp womp i must not be good like that artists really aren't that egotistical like that that's that means that the focus is entirely on you and your ego and your gain and if you're going to be an artist and you're going to make something that's going to change a generation like you have to at some point realize it's really not about you it's about the people who need to who need to hear certain things you know yeah so someone who I've noticed has, has weathered the pandemic well is is someone you're familiar with, which is Mark Normand, who... Love him. Seeing him this weekend at Miami Improv. Fantastic. He's He's been putting out great stuff on YouTube during the pandemic. I don't know if you've seen a lot of it, but, you know, he just kind of keeps doing stuff. And he also has this kind of naked quality to his work where, like, he'll just upload, you know, some video of him just trying out new stuff. And it's just like... I, I forget who says the term. I know I know Pendulette kind of like popularized its usage, but the purpose of art is to stand naked on stage. You know, it, that's just a a, a quote. I, I don't think he's ever been able to source the actual place where he found it, but that's one of those quotes that just kind of stuck with me forever. And there has to be that little bit of nudity to your work. It doesn't have to be literal nudity, but it has to be some aspect of yourself that that is truly being shared and when people see that they they're like all right well i can trust this person you know i can i can go on this ride with this person because i feel like i'm a part of something now that like somebody shared something with me it's like it's like a re reciprocity thing you know where like you you give a little bit of yourself and the audience will give a little bit of themselves too they'll they'll meet you there it's building comfort it's building it's building trust it's it's absolutely yeah it is um Yes. And that is, that is your job. It's it, the, the thing about art is my experiences are your experiences. Like maybe the details shift, but the human emotion is the same. We've all been embarrassed. We've all been excited. We've all been rejected. We've all been all these things. The difference between, you know, me as an artist and you as a consumer or a non-artist is that I have this ability and this willingness and this bravery and this inclination to, to be naked and talk about it. And it may maybe you don't and that's okay you know like your your talents lie elsewhere but you know that's that's the difference between artists and everybody else the commonality is there we all go through the same things and feel the same things that's that's why art is a thing you know it's universal the difference is i'm willing to fall on the sword 
I feel inclined to talk about it in ways that maybe you don't. So I'll talk about it so you don't need to. Yeah. And uh, the the most praise and the most like honest and awesome praise I've ever gotten in life has been when I I do something that's on some level a little bit daring and impressive and is something where like I can kind of blow people's minds like I'm a skateboarder doing some like crazy skateboard trick and like some some person who would never attempt that ever in life is just like wow man that was like really incredible like I I shot an entire movie in 10 hours that's one of the things that I've I've kind of like crossed off my my bucket list and that's one of those things where like it's like doing a 900 on a skateboard. It's like it's like any kind of seismic event where like if I do it then suddenly kids are going to realize that it's possible and they'll grow up in a world where like yeah, I could shoot a movie in 10 hours. Maybe I could shoot a movie in 5 hours, etc. Yeah. It's like you need those people that are just going to actually do the thing so that future people just think it's old hat that you even can do it. They're like, yeah, of course you can shoot a movie in 10 hours. But you forget that like before I did that, people are like telling me, no, you could never do that and shit. It's why I do it for, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things and one of the biggest upsides to having female comedians because, you know, we had, we had generations of, and this is the only time I'll use the term female comedian because I really hate it. I really think just all comedians are comedians, but you know, we do come from, a society where having women on stage, women just straight up weren't allowed on stage or, you know, we're, we're forced out or, you know, we grow in society as being told we can't be gross. We can't talk about poop. We can't be, we have to be quiet and be pretty and be polite and be all of these things. So I think, you know, that's one of the joys in, in being, that's one of the things I will say in being like a woman on stage that I'll definitely say is that because usually I look at myself as an equal with men or however anybody identifies I do but it is kind of nice that little girls can see me on stage and they can be like I can do that like you know the same way they see doctors and astronauts and things like that you know because that's what's going to resonate they're going to look at somebody who looks like them and they're going to say oh wait a minute so this is an opportunity for me whereas I think in many many generations past little girls didn't see older women on TV, or if they did, they only saw a handful of them like Gilda Radner and Lucille Ball and like, you know, who are icons and stuff. So I think, you know, it's just, it's the same way, like, you know, black, white women, men, like however people identify just you doing the act of it is already people are going to be like, oh, it is possible. You know, the generations ahead, it is possible. I grew up seeing it. So it must be true. Absolutely. And I feel like whenever you're going to attempt something in life, instead of framing it in your mind as like, well, nobody's done this or not enough people have done this that I feel comfortable doing it or whatever. You have to remember that like, okay, if nobody's done this or if not enough people have done this, then by me doing it, I can be, you know, the reason why more people do it or the reason why it's a thing to be done. Like I'm, I'm 33 years old. I just started rollerblading. I just started skateboarding. And That's it was because awesome. it was, yeah. And it was just because it was this thing where, like, well, I always thought it kind of looked cool. And I always thought I probably couldn't be able to do it. And I'm realizing, oh, I actually can do this. Like, this isn't, this, it's not that hard, but it's something where, like, anybody seeing me in the street, you know, they, they'll see my age and they'll assume I've done it for at least a couple years just because I have a beard and I'm like standing in the street with a skateboard or whatever. There's that visual thing. So it's not like I'm wearing a shirt that said, hey, I just started doing this or whatever. But at the same time, if somebody finds out, hey, I just started, then they're going to realize, oh, I could start too or whatever. You know, it's just like 
people frame these things as like disasters in their minds, like if they do something that nobody else is doing. But it's like, man, every time I've I've done that, it's just like people are just so happy to see it and happy to uh, you know know that something at least somebody's doing it, and then it just knocks down doors in their mind for like whatever they want to do, whatever they want to for biases. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a, a big thing. And you know, to your point, like. I see your point of it as like, I just started and like, you know, working your age into it. But I actually think, you know, the implicit point that you're making here is that it, it shouldn't matter how long you've been doing something. You know, somebody just gave me that piece of advice about stand up. They were like, never tell anybody. Don't even talk about it. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah, because the second you put a number, your age to it or a number to it or whatever, they're like, then, then they're in their head with, oh, well, where should you be at three years versus 10 years versus this versus that? Like, that shouldn't matter. Like, you should just get on stage and be funny. That's it. And nobody should care what you look like or what's going on or how, or how long you've done it to your point or when it is you started. The fact is you started and the fact is that you're doing it and, and it's happening, you know, because you could become a master of anything or find your calling of anything at any age. And yeah, and I think that's great that you're doing that too. It's so important too for artists to have hobbies that have nothing to do with the thing that they're trying to you know, I still, I still dance. I used to be a dancer and I have no interest in being a professional dancer. I don't care. I don't care to be a pro at it, but it's like really, really fun to have a hobby that like, I don't care about. It's great. Like, you know, but it's a creative outlet. I do it cause it feels good. It's, it's a part of me and it's really freeing cause it can kind of help me split my focus from comedy and acting. Cause I'm like, well, this is, this is really fun. And I get to flex the same muscle, but like, I'm not trying to monetize it. You know, I can still just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, until you start doing the thing, you don't realize how much skills you already have towards it that you didn't realize were skills towards it. So like, maybe you're starting stand up at 30 or 40 or 50. But you have creative writing background in some capacity. And that's going to give you a little bit of a leg up and make it a little easier for you to do comedy as opposed to somebody who's starting out at like 16 or 17 and has zero years of creative writing experience or, 10, or whatever. Yeah. So like the whole thing of like, oh, you need to put in like 10 years at least to be a good stand-up comedian. It's like, well, you're not counting all the other skills that go into any one thing that you're doing. So you're not counting the fact that like, man, it's it's just such a, it's like a rocket ship to success if you have any ability to write a sentence whatsoever and really make sure it's concise, Yeah, you know, as a comedian. It's just like so much of the work is that. It's so much of the work is just like whittling down and whittling down. And if you've been whittling down your words your whole life, you're just going to have such a leg up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, and it's, I, I, I would also encourage people to know too, that like, it's never a bad thing to be new at something. So if somebody says, oh, they're new, the context and the stigma associated with that is, oh, they're new. Well, they, you know, they just, they just started. So, you know, like that gets talked about a lot in stand up. And like, I know people who have done it for years who have never figured it out and found their voice. I know people who just started who are fucking awesome, you know, so never let new be a, you know, they're new. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe I am technically new to this. All right. You got me. Factually speaking, I haven't done stand up for 10 years. Okay. That's, you know. What's the point? What does it matter? Being new at something is exciting. It should be exciting and awe-inspiring. And then you have all this potential and momentum and, and interest in wanting to do it. You know, do, So never, never be insulted if someone's like, oh, you're new. Oh, she's new. Oh, he, oh it's, it's only his first film. Oh, it's, you know what I mean? Like, that's not, that'd be like looking at a baby and being like, oh, they're new. You know, they were just born. So 
they don't know. And you know what? Like they have their whole lives ahead of them, <laughs> literally. So. Yeah. And they also have the wisdom of not knowing, which every, you know, pretty much every faith and every religion and every spirituality is like, you know, in order to know anything truly, you kind of have to empty your mind in some capacity, whether it's meditation or whatever. You just kind of have to connect to a place of not knowing and non-judgment. And, you know, when you're new at something, you're not, you don't have all the bullshit in your head of like, I can't do this type of thing, or I can't approach it from this angle or whatever. It's all fresh. And so you might hit on something that somebody 10, 20, 30 years in is going to forget is possible or, or never learn that it is possible or whatever. But uh, yeah, I think we're, we're very much on the same page with a lot of stuff. I think, I hope this, this episode is very helpful for a lot of people. Before we close out, we're going to do a little thing here, which if you've heard the episodes before, is called Stupid Questions. Are you ready to be asked some stupid questions? Yes, I ask them myself every day, so no question is stupid to me. Let's do it. Perfect. All right, first stupid question. Your name is uh, your name is Brittany Brave, right? Mm-hmm. Any relation to the Atlanta Braves? No. I, I wish. I wish. I think I'd be more uh financially well off so no no relation okay all right next question your name is Brittany brave right yeah how does it feel to have alliteration because i i've enjoyed having alliteration in my life my name is cody clark i i've enjoyed it how have you enjoyed uh, alliteration you know that's true you do have alliteration too um i have enjoyed it i have to say i think it's the kind of thing that i wouldn't have known to have asked for or requested, but I do feel fortunate to kind of have had a stage name basically fall into my lap. And just about ever since like middle school, people have kind of introduced me as Brittany Brave, as if Brittany Brave is uh, one word altogether. Um, so I've, I'm grateful for it. I think it makes it a little bit memorable. I think it opens up a new channel for nicknames. And yeah, I know a lot of people don't believe it's actually my real last name, but I mean, it's it's kind of cool now to have a career in entertainment and have a name that sounds like you have a career in entertainment, right? Can't complain. Yeah, my alliteration is, uh, I, I have a, a naturally occurring alliteration as you do. And I definitely get like these things where people will be like, is that like a chosen name? Did you just get that? I mean, it's like, well, my parents did choose it. You know, they, they knew that it was going to have alliteration when they chose my first name, but you know, I didn't choose it for myself. It's just, you know, sometimes people just have awesome names, you know, it just happens. I know, I know. And then people always say that too. Like, yeah, I know, like they, they, they don't believe that it's, that it's real or they think that it's like a little bit more contrived or something. And like, yeah, like to your point, it's kind of like, it's kind of wild to be like, I actually did nothing to, to get this name. I just uh, was born with it. That's it. So. <laughs> All right. Next stupid question. So you were in you were in a movie called Strummer, mm-hmm. which was in black and white. Mm-hmm. What was it like being in black and white? Mm. I think it gave me a little bit more mystery, and I think it it gave me a little bit more sex appeal. Um, and I know you and I, you know, we we had some sexy scenes in that movie, and I shed I shed some layers of clothing and so on and so forth. And I think it was easier to do so under much more forgiving black and white lighting. Um, and it also made me feel like as if an old school actress, like uh, like from from the the people that I grew up admiring and stuff, you know, a little a little vintage vibe to it. So ten out of ten would shoot a movie or anything in black and white again. I see no reason not to. All right, cool. And final question: 
As you as you mentioned, we did get a little hot and heavy in uh, Strummer. Uh-huh. What's it like to make out with me? <laughs> Wonderful. Great. It was uh, it was very fun. Um, it translated very well on screen. And it was even better that um, your wonderful girlfriend, Chloe, was in the room. That made, that added that an entire other dynamic. It was a, it was a very unique setting to make out with somebody, but you know what? I can check it off of my list now. Great job. I hope you're adding that to your IMDb, that, you know, you're, you're a great on-screen kiss. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and you as well. You as well. Thank you. Thank you, boys, single boys out there. Please listen. Thank you, Cody. This is really giving my uh, my love life a signal boost. I appreciate it. Any anything I can do, of course, anytime. <laughs> All right, so Brittany, it was great having you on. Love talking to you. Um, everyone, please check out her show, "The Disastrous Dating Life of Diane Damone." I got the title perfect again just then. Got it right at the start. Got it right at the end. And watch Strummer and watch anything else she's in. Just, you know, Google her name. Just, you know, go through everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it won't disappoint. So, you know, I mean, I'm only early in my career, so give me time to make something that'll disappoint you. But so far, so good, if you ask me. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, as we said before, $2 per month, killthelinefilms.com. That's all it takes to support us. You're supporting not just the show, you're supporting the studio as well. You're helping us make movies. See you soon.